is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. horror queers we're talking orange bob cuts we're talking dead puppies and we're talking letting cheaters come in your mouth yeah i'm joe (laughs) and i'm trace and we're talking jennifer jason lee's tits the movie yeah more or less yeah it's just a lot of boobs so when i was so we're talking single white female y'all I thought that I had seen this before, and I had seen the ending a lot on TV. I don't think I've ever seen this movie in its entirety. And I realized that when I realized that there were a lot of scenes that I just have never seen before. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, I realized very quickly that I knew of the film and had not seen any of it because half the time I was like, what the shit is this? I think I've seen the scene of Jennifer Jason Lee coming down the stairs with the exact same haircut. That's it. Yes, it, that and the high-heeled shoe scene are the most famous parts of this movie, which is, again, kind of weird that nothing from the climax is like notable for being remembered. Where does it even start? Where does it even end? I don't say. know. But we are doing this episode because it's two—it's dropping two days before Valentine's Day, so we thought a movie <laughs> about just genuine love would be the best thing to drop. And to help us discuss it, we have not one, but two guests of the female variety. And so, yeah, we're going to just kind of bring them on in here. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, they are the hosts of Double A Horror Highway, a horror movie podcast that looks at all aspects of various horror films, including, but not limited to, themes, best kills, historical relevance, and cultural impact. You might say that we're kind of like birds of a feather, their first season ended last year, and they're currently hard at work on season two. Please welcome the double A's of Double A Horror Highway, Amy Cassio and Amy Ketchum. Hi. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Yeah. <laughs> You're so welcome. Thank you for coming on to this movie. <laughs> yeah, should we apologize? <laughs> no. We have, we have brought guests onto much worse <laughs> movies than this one. Fair. <laughs> Was this y'all's first time watching this? Um, I, I know I saw it when it was new, and I kind of feel like I saw it, you know, maybe 15 years ago, but I didn't remember much of it. It was my first time. Like, I, I had heard of it in the 90s, and I had wanted to see it, but I this was definitely my first time. Oh, wow. Okay. It definitely has a 90s feel to it, specifically the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I didn't do a ton of research on what was coming out, but there is one film that it's just kind of compar- com- comparable to. <sighs> I'm a little surprised that it kind of was as successful as it was, because I just feel like it's, I don't know, it doesn't quite get crazy enough for me. Yeah, it does have a bit of a lack of some of the more, dare I say it, exploitative elements that we were seeing in things like Basic Instinct and Fatal Attraction, which Mm -hmm. I think is sort of where it's falling along the lines of, but this feels safer, maybe just a little bit more easygoing. I mean, minus all the tits, yeah, it's just like, I don't know, honestly, the sex scenes really felt out of place compared to something like Basic Instinct, where I feel like the premise lends itself to graphic sexuality. I don't know, maybe I'll disagree. I think I pretty much agree with exactly what you just said. (laughs) I I don't really have much to add, because that is exactly how I felt. 
Well, fuck all. All right, well, we'll just dive into this shit then. (laughs) So, okay, this is Single My Female. It was released August 14th, 1992. So we're talking a summer release. And I just looked it up beforehand because I wasn't sure. Um, This came out about March, April, May, June, July. Five months after Basic Instinct. So it's kind of that time where the erotic thrillers are really taking off. Um, It's after Basic Instinct, before Showgirls ruined it all for everybody. So... Yeah, it's cool. It's kind of, again, feels out of place. Distributed by Columbia Pictures with a runtime of 107 minutes. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll do it when we about the plot, but there is a draggy middle section in this movie. And a budget of $16 million? Not bad. Welcome back to the early 90s. <sighs> okay. $16 million in 92 is probably about $32 million today. I mean, I'm totally, like, guesstimating there, but that's roughly, like, double the inflation rate. I'm guessing it all went to Bridget Fonda? Filming in New York? And keeping her hair that orange color. That ain't cheap. She looked like Peter Pan this entire movie, and I do not like it. I just kept thinking of a mushroom. (laughs) It is. It's an orange mushroom. With sideburns. I mean, God bless Bridget Fonda. She is gorgeous in this movie. Mm-hmm. That hair. No. Mm-mm. No, no, no. <laughs> it's Kathy Rigby and Peter Pan. But I will say, though, about those sideburns, they look good. When Jennifer Jason Lee gets the haircut, they, they're not really sideburns. It's like a tail on each side of her head. <laughs> well, that's got to be a wig, right? Like, it's a bad yeah. wig. I'm going to so. say yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dear Lord, Jennifer Jason Lee, I hope it's a wig. It's really funny how unrecognizable she is. I mean, like, because yeah. when she when she enters the movie, like, she looks like how you think Jennifer Jason Lee looks, and when she changes that hair, it's just like a completely different person. Yeah, it was a little too much for me though to see like a duplicate of that haircut. Yeah. <laughs> what I want to know though, so I I did not do enough research on hair trends of the early '90s before we recorded this. So I'm going to apologize. I need to know, was this cut a thing, or were they trying to make it a thing? I was about to ask the same question, because it's, I just, I mean, okay, it makes me think of a little boy, and normally that's fine, given my, you know, affinity for twinks. I was gonna say, predilection for little boys? Oh, I I, I, I have to be specific (laughs) about it, but I, yeah, I don't know, man, like, honestly, I was kind of like, well, that's why Stephen Weber cheated on you. Well, rude, rude. I went to high school in the 90s, and there was a lot of mushroom haircuts, but not exactly <laughs> that, but and definitely not on mushroom women. haircuts. I mean, I had this haircut in the early 90s. <laughs> and then they had, like, the high bangs that, like, curled outwards. Oh, yes. yes you know yes, what? Yes. Come to think of it, I had a bowl haircut in the early 90s, too, but I was, like, three when this movie came out, so I have an excuse. Who had five minutes before Trace mentioned how old he is? Anybody? Anybody? It's fine. <laughs> I, I think that uh, it was a thing. I mean, if we look at our pop culture, we had a few of them. We had um, the one character on Melrose Place. I can't remember what her name was. <gasps> is it Josie Bissett? Yeah, Josie Bissett and um, China Phillips. So Wilson Phillips had the same hair about oh, the same time. Yes. <laughs> and even T-Boz of TLC, that was 1992 that they came out with that, that same hair. So somebody was doing it. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, the question is, was this the trailblazer, the trendsetter, or was this movie simply just reflecting back the popular culture at the time? Who knows, man? Well, I I will confess. So this movie, because I feel like it's referenced a lot 
like in pop culture. Like this is a movie that people know. It was successful, but it wasn't quite. So it opened in the number two slot in its opening weekend with $10.2 million, went on to gross $48 million domestically, which I think is totally fine based on that $16 million budget. That's a pretty sizable hit. Yeah, I think we're spoiled now because if a movie doesn't make like $70 million opening weekend, it's like, you know, dead in the water. <laughs> yeah, these are different times. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it went on to gross $36 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $84 million. So yeah, I mean, what? That's what, what, five times its budget, roughly? Mm-hmm. And bear in mind that this is a time when international grosses were not as big of a thing. I wonder when that flip happened. Like, when did people start caring about international numbers? towards the end of the 90s when stuff like Harry Potter and Star Wars started to come back onto the stage in a big way. Mm, that makes sense. Well, it wasn't quite as big of a hit with critics as I thought it was going to be. We're looking at a 54% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.32 out of 10. Audience score is 44% with an average score of 6.34 out of 10. But Metacritic's a bit kinder. I mean, again, I say that as if Metacritic's the one giving the score out, obviously. As we've discussed at Ad Nauseum, it's an aggregate site. Metacritic is a 63 out of 100 with an, a user score of 82 out of 100, but I think that's like 13 reviews. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> the movie ain't that great, folks. <sighs> well, I mean, I guess we're, we'll, we'll discuss it when we get into the plot. But, yeah, director is... Ooh, Joe, can you say his name? Because I want to say that T is silent. I'm guessing it's not. I'm thinking it's Barbette Schroeder. Okay. Well, he is French, which would explain the female nudity in this film. Oh, maybe <laughs> I don't want to say that. Maybe that's a generalization. That's um, fine. European and slightly more liberal with the nudity. Well, so this was uh, his second English language film. He did a movie before this called Reversal of Fortune that I've never seen. Never heard of. But I was actually shocked to know that he did the famed... Well, I like it. 2002 Sandra Bullock, Ryan Gosling, Michael Pitt movie, Murder by Numbers. Oh, that's a really good one. I really like it, too. (laughs) And the fun thing is that both of our respective podcasts could do that because that is once again based on the Leopold and Loeb murders, which Tracy and I have talked about. It's also the inspiration for Rope. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I haven't seen that movie. It was one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw. I just have have a special place in my heart for it, but I haven't seen it since 2002 so i don't know how it's aged fine it's fine (laughs) she's good in it ryan gosling is good michael pitt is good in it but the movie itself is fine well i guess we can add it to our to cover list Mm -hmm. but our queer content if we don't want to buy into hetty as a lesbian um which you don't have to uh is the the screenwriter don roos who i didn't realize oh well he's gay married to dan bukatinsky who i know from like the comeback and scandal Mm mm-hmm so he wrote the Christina Ricci movie, The Opposite of Sex. He wrote the remake of Le Diabolique, which is just called Diabolique. And he wrote Marley and Me. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hard left turn. <laughs> but I think this was his first major film. So like, you can tell he's like still kind of like stretching his legs out here, just trying to get a feel for his writing pen. <laughs> Typewriter. Computer. Sexual euphemism. I don't know. But yeah, so I think, um, yeah, fuck it. Let's just go into the plot. Okay. After a brief prologue in which twin girls play makeup and kissy face, the camera slowly moves around the exterior of an apartment complex. Inside, Allison Jones, Bridget Fonda, and her fiancé, Sam Rawson, Stephen Weber. Uh, Stephen Weber. <laughs> Sorry. I like Stephen Weber. I like him. I just, 
it's difficult to see him now that we've seen the, the perfection. perfection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, though, if you... Because this is... Because I think we discussed in The Perfection, he was in Wings in the 90s, right. which was yeah. a... I never watched that, but I'm assuming that's probably around this time, so... <sighs> Do I want to? Do we want to say he plays a sleaze ball in this movie? Because I know he cheats. I know that's like how we're introduced to him. But I do think that he does a pretty good job of redeeming himself. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we see a lot of him, so it's hard to say. Yeah, I think we're life. meant to take it on assumption that he isn't a terrible guy because everything after the cheating makes him seem nice. But you're right; we get to see so little of him that. He's literally introduced as, here's a boyfriend who makes Bridget Fonda happy, and then two seconds later, oh yeah, so I slept with my ex-wife. It totally didn't mean to happen. Oops. I mean, he writes her a note. He leaves <laughs> her voicemails. He apologizes multiple times. I'm, I, I think I'm just really easy. Maybe. <laughs> Have you been hurt before, Trey? <laughs> I mean, okay, full dis- full disclosure, I've been on both sides of this particular scenario, so I guess I understand both sides of it. You let a puppy fall through a grate in an apartment no. complex? <laughs> no. <laughs> a cheating scenario. Right, yeah. Okay, sorry, I, I didn't know if I had to like, spell that out. Anyway, sorry, continue, because they're fucking... Yeah, they be fucking, and they're also going to get married, so they're discussing their upcoming nuptials. And then, as I suggested that night, Sam's ex-wife calls, and it's kind of hilarious that Bridget found is very easygoing. She's totally fine with this woman calling because he lives there now, and that's okay. And then she hears on the answering machine that Sam has slept with this woman earlier that day. <laughs> She's not so happy about it anymore. I do love the reveal, though, of, like, how it's done where it's, like, playing on the answering machine, which is such a 90s thing, but I think it's a really cool setup. Oh, yeah. That's why you never pick up the phone if it's already gone to answering machine, because then you're just recording that phone conversation, and everybody can hear. I think this is when we're introduced, which I actually commend the movie for this, because, um, so we just discussed The Boy Next Door a couple weeks ago, where there are tons of Chekhov's things. Chekhov's snooping air vent, mm-hmm. which yes. I love. Yeah, I thought of Ketchum for that, because she's oh been having gosh. these voyeur moments. Because you're really, <laughs> really? into your window. Okay, pause the podcast. Ketchum, <laughs> tell us everything. What are you hearing? Is it juicy? I just like that type of movie. So I'm always asking Cassier, like, every couple of weeks, like, have you? do you know of one? I don't know. It's kind of kind of an obsession right now. A voyeuristic movie? Yeah, just digging through them. Um, you know, like someone looking out the window, seeing a crime, no one believing them. That type of movie. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm not going to yuck your yum. You do you. (laughs) (laughs) There's a good one coming up with Amy Adams called The Woman in the Window. Yes, I really want to see that. (laughs) So you'll double feature, uh, triple feature that Disturbia and Rear Window. Sounds good to me. (laughs) All right. So yes, Allie's gay neighbor, Graham, Graham Knox, can actually overhear the fight through the vents. So that's how that plot point is introduced. Did he remind you of the gay best friend from Copycat? No? No one? Okay, fine. <laughs> oh, yo, ooh, copycat's so good. Copycat's great. I'm trying to remember the gay best friend on Copycat. It, well, because Sigourney Weaver in that movie is an agoraphobic, so her gay best friend mm-hmm. lives with her, but he gets decapitated in when the copycat is copycatting uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. Yes, he gets recruited at the club. It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Then decapitated. It's great. I mean, like, not great, <laughs> but, like, it's a good death. 
yeah, this guy has generic early 90s look to him. Almost like when you look at it, it just becomes a mosaic of every white man with sort of curly dark hair. Mm-hmm. Like, I had face blindness with this guy. Every time he showed back up, oh, is that what Graham looks like? Oh, okay, sure. Well, because mm-hmm. Stephen Tobolowski kind of has the same hair in this movie, and he has a much more memorable face. And character. Yeah, just a bit. Rapey McRaperson. Like, we're playing with a lot of ciphers here. Graham is literally just neighbor who is gay. And yeah. Gay is just something that he announces. Like, we hear him talking to a partner at some point. And literally, apart from that, he may never leave that apartment. We don't well, know. He also has no <laughs> sex life because he gets off just listening to Bridget Fonda and Stephen Weber have sex. Sure. I mean, Ketchum has already said that that works for her as well. So, <laughs> <Right>. really. <laughs> well, it also works for Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie because she also likes to masturbate. <laughs> I, mean, I just, I don't know how I feel about the tape, though, on the grate. Is that truly going to block out the sound? No. No. not. No, 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 no. <laughs> Like, the things that people think tape can do in this movie. <laughs> it's impressive. It's very impressive. So, in terms of gay representation with this character, though, I mean, it's not good, because he's just a sexless being, but mm-hmm. it's still, given as a gay screenwriter, it's still at least nice that he's there, and given the time period, given that it's 1992, but, mm-hmm. again, looking at, well, because I'm looking at, like, Basic Instinct, where it's like, oh, mur- possibly murderous bisexual woman... Uh, 1992 was a fun year for mainstream gay representation in film. Yeah, you're either a killer or you're a sexless best friend. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I'm shocked that he lived to the end of the movie, to be honest. Yeah, 100%. I actually had to text Trace when I got to that point. I was like, Graham is still alive! (laughs) Well, because she beats him with... uh, It's not like a... What even is that? Is it a crowbar? Is it a fireplace poker? Well, it's also right by the door. Like He, like, keeps it by the door for reasons? Yeah, I don't understand his whole lock situation with that bar. (laughs) Because nothing in this apartment building works. The elevator doesn't work. You need a screwdriver to work it. The sink. Clearly his door doesn't work. The sink doesn't work. Like, it's massive. But the whole building is falling apart. I, the whole time, though, with these fucking apartments, I was like, A, when, they mo- when they're looking at apartments later to move, she's like, oh, well, it's half the size. Or he's like, it's half the size, but double the price. And I'm like, you have no furniture in your enormous apartment. Why do you want a big one? It doesn't make any fucking sense. Oh, yeah. Like, they should start a nightclub because they have so much fucking space. I love it, though, when Jennifer Jason Lee is just watching TV and she's just sitting on two chairs. <laughs> but, like, dining chairs, not, like, a lounge chair. Mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> Even their beds. Their beds are on the fucking ground. Yes! These are grown women with jobs. <laughs> have some respect! Get your shit off the ground, ladies. Come on. Well, to be fair, Bridget Fonda's is kind of, it's like one of those Ikea things where it's like a wooden block and the mattress is on top of that. But yeah, Jennifer Jason Lee is legit just like a mattress on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just spent all this money on furniture and you're already And we never me. see it! We never <laughs> see this furniture! Okay, Ugh. let's let's back up. Let's sorry, run <laughs> sorry. I get. I, I was just really angry because I, I mean, I've never lived in New York. I've been in New York though, and I've seen places. It's like the Friends thing where it's like, how the fuck does this chef Monica afford this giant ass apartment? Doesn't make any sense. Oh yeah, this is fiction of the highest order. Well, well, this they mentioned it a couple times that this is actually a, a controlled rent apartment, mm-hmm. right? So you know, she's locked in. Her price isn't going to go up. 
which kind of makes it kind of odd that they want to move to their own place to begin with if she's got such a great deal on you know this huge space right i don't care how much you feel bad about possibly evicting your new roommate that you're getting along with reasonably well you're not leaving a rent-controlled apartment in new york that is lunacy Mm -mm, mm -mm. i say this as someone whose rent goes up every year and it just makes me want to die a little inside my rent went down 50 dollars when i renewed this year Shut up, you lost. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. So let's introduce Ali's career. And I'm interested to hear what all of you think she actually does. Because she has a lunch meeting the next day with a prospective client, Mitchell Meyerson, who's played Trace, as you mentioned, by Stephen Tobolowski, who is just such a weird guy. <laughs> I like to think that he grows up to become his character in the Disney remake of Freaky Friday with Lindsay Lohan, where he's like the teacher that torments her. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's that's all I could think the whole time. <laughs> well, because he's a character actor, you know? He's in a bunch of Very, shit, yeah. but I, I just remember him from Freaky Friday. And guys, I got to point this out, but almost every episode, Cassie and I have to mention Lindsay Lohan, so that's really awesome. <laughs> so we got the Lindsay there. Lohan connection. Always. Oh, yes. Love it. That's good. We've actually had a run where we somehow had to mention... Oh, Hillary Duff. I was talking about Hillary Duff and Lizzie McGuire. The Lizzie so. McGuire movie. Because it's the best. One day, we'll just cover it for the podcast because it's, it, it's a horror movie. It's about getting lost in Rome, getting gaslighted. <laughs> Jesus. Gaslit, yeah. not gaslighted. gaslighted. Whatever. Um, so, okay. She is a computer software developer. But my thing was this. So, the software she develops for him is this weird fashion thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's the fashion closet from Clueless. <laughs> yes, it is. But but it also does the books for them. Yeah. So it's like a website, like an early prototype website, because you can allow people to switch out the design of the dresses, because he, he operates some kind of dress company, and it can outfit the models that you can then have on the screen, but it also balances the books. But makes no sense. Is she a software developer for the fashion industry, or is she a software developer for any industry, and she just learns everything about it to make the software? Right. That's that's how I understood it. She had created that for him, and then pitched it to him, hoping he would want mm. it. Mm-hmm. That she's just a developer. Okay. It definitely makes more sense that way, because the possibilities of a fashion app from 1992 would be very limited, I think. I mean, did you see the fucking si- system? Yeah. I mean, she carries it around. Let's talk about that system. Please. <laughs> it yes, looks like a nuclear that. briefcase. <laughs> so that's called an outbound laptop, and they were $3,000. What? <laughs> yeah. Like, no wonder she ain't got no money. She can't afford furniture because she spent all of her money on that computer. Well, and she's got a exactly. real cunt of an ex-business partner who is just like... <laughs> She's terrible. Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the little little twist is that none of those laptops by Outbound were in color. So oh. we already know at that point that they're lying to us. Fiction. <laughs> this whole movie. I can't believe a single thing they're saying. It's technology from the future. I mean, this movie doesn't actually say that it takes place in 1992, so it could be a future film. Oh, man. Can you imagine if this movie had disclosure-level VR in it? <laughs> Oh, that's a good movie, too. I mean, actually, pro- <laughs> probably not a good movie in hindsight, oh, no, it's, but... it's really bad. It's ah! bad. 
<laughs> it's about how men can't succeed in the workplace because the the women in the workplace may accuse them of sexual harassment. Oh my god, it's the Harvey Weinstein story. Ooh. Well, I mean, we kind of get that. Okay, so sorry. We, we kind of get that here with Tobolowski. Well, not in this scene. Oh, right. I'm jumping ahead. Fuck. Sorry. <laughs> Continue. Yeah, so all we need to know about this is that she is a harried business lady who has had some bad ex-partner dealings, which has... Like, I don't entirely understand what we're meant to know about this, except for the fact that she is in a vulnerable professional state as much as she is a vulnerable personal state with regard to her ex-fiancé. Yes. And so I think if Hetty had come across as more crazy early on, that would have maybe made more sense. It's just like, oh, she's just desperate for a roommate. But I don't know. I mean, this Tobolowski subplot... I think is the one element too many of this film. I don't necessarily think it needs it, especially when we get into Rape Land. Mm. I'm curious, ladies, did you think that that was in here to showcase how pretty much all men who are not gay are terrible in this film? And also, (laughs) do you think he's just here to add a body to the climax? You know, there's a lot, there's a lot of, confusing parts in this movie (laughs) (laughs) for me i had to watch this three times in chunks yeah i like broke it into chunks and (laughs) i don't know if i've ever done that before with a movie that's how confusing all of it was to me about you know these characters none of them really have much importance besides our our two main characters i mean not even um sam he really is kind of secondary. So well, he exists to die. That is literally right, why right. he exists. Exactly. And uh, and I kind of wanted this guy to come in and and be a hero. You know, when he when he comes in and she's in the tape that's holding her to a chair, which is kind of <laughs> far fetched as well. But <laughs> I can't um... wait to talk about this climax. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I need to say forty five minutes because that's how long it goes on for. I know. <laughs> Okay, so basically after all of these incidents, Allie is very upset and vulnerable and emotional, so she confesses to Graham that she can't live alone, but she's technically not allowed to have a roommate because of her rent-controlled status, so she needs to sneak a range of candidates in. Enter roommate montage in which we just get every stock stereotype that we possibly can. I know that this is before Mrs. Doubtfire, but it really reminds me of the scene when Robin Williams is calling Sally Field using all the different voices to like (laughs) freak her out. But I mean, the best one's the maybe incest survivor. Like, did y'all not just like fucking jaw to the floor (laughs) with that shit? Right. It was... It was out of place, even. I mean, there's there's so much in this movie that's out of place. Like, we have the biker, the biker butch woman who's like, I'm good with tools. You know that's how she was (laughs) described in the script, too. Butch, biker, tool lady. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Lesbian. And you knew that she was because she was immediately coded like, oh, as soon as I can get in here. And you're just like, oh, she already thinks that she lives there. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, you know, we have, you know, we have the butch one, we have the incest one. Is there anyone else before we get to the quote unquote perfect one? Uh, we do have the femme woman and she's eyeing Allie seductively and then Allie is eyeing her back and they're just saying nothing, but they're just eyeing each other. And it's a very confusing scene to me because I don't understand. It feels like there's a deleted storyline where something happened between them and we just didn't get to see what happened. 
I honestly forgot that happened because even later when she goes to the club, there's the woman that wants to play with her. Right. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lesbian, like, fear. I mean, maybe not fear, but, like, a lot of that in this movie on her. Or it's Bridget Fonda's 1992 fuckability is at an all-time high in this movie. Like, every (laughs) woman that encounters her is like, you're giving off a lot of sapphic energy, and I'm really into what you're putting out into the world right Mm. now. Yeah. I mean, I felt this movie was very gay. Like, very lesbian. (laughs) So lesbian. (laughs) That's funny, because I actually found it a bit understated. Like, I really went into it thinking that we were going to get to see more Aside from the fact that there's a lot of lingering glances, but it seems like Ali is very sexually shy. But, okay, understated, but, so, okay, out of the four roommate applicants we see before Hetty, two of them are very different lesbians, but it's also like, oh, this isn't good, this isn't okay, you know, they were supposed to, like, laugh at this. Yeah, I was just confused by it, like Ketchum said earlier, it's a very confusing movie. And, you know, this is a perfect time for a quote I have from a website (laughs) called therap.com. Okay. And here's how they describe the movie. A historically fascinating but unsettling lesbian phobic cautionary tale about female independence. Yes. Yep. (laughs) It's like, ladies, don't open your doors because a crazy lesbian could walk through it and just Mm -hmm. upset everything in your life. Right, so it's really a tale of caution. So Allie's very cautious. So maybe she is picking up vibes from the femme lady. You know, maybe she does want to play at the S&M club. Mm-hmm. But she's very cautious. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, right? The film does set it up that way because it literally opens with her discovering that the person that she is going to marry has been cheating on her. And then she's immediately also revealed at the business lunch to have had a former partner who also we don't know the specifics but things did not go well between the two of them it's just funny because it's like it's bridget fonda and she's like oh she's so insecure and so i don't know what to do bridget fonda (laughs) why is that funny (laughs) i just know because like it's just like the way she looks like she's fucking bridget fonda like she probably doesn't feel that way I'm not, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna die on that hill never mind <laughs> see i was going to say i've seen bridget fonda in point of no return which is the american remake of la femme nikita mm-hmm. and i just kept waiting for her to bust out some killer assassin moves <laughs> and just like <laughs> right. take out everybody in her way she will at the end of this movie true true <laughs> yes okay So she has this range of candidates. She seems to have stumbled upon this one that is absolutely perfect. You know, blonde haired, blue eyes, bathed in light. She's absolutely great. But instead of calling this woman, she calls Sam. And then she has a little crying fit. And this is when Hetty Carlson, Jennifer Jason Lee, walks in. And they have a meet cute over a busted tap. And they just seem to get along so well. So Hetty, why don't you move on in? I wrote in my notes, this is a really cute meet cute. <laughs> it is. It's almost like a great first date, right? You get a little yes. wet. You have to take your clothes off and hang out. It's very gay. <laughs> and that whole scene, scene is very, very bound. It's like very violet and quirky with them like fixing the sink together. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Maybe Bound took that sink scene like that because that was 95 or maybe 96. Yeah, yeah, I think. So they were like, the Wachowskis were like, let's do single white female. We'll just make it sexier because that movie's sexier <laughs> than this one. 
Indeed, yes. Definitely. Bound is just a touch sexier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so Heidi has moved in, and almost immediately we discover that Ali is going through her stuff. So she's testing her perfume, she's looking at her pearl earrings, and when Hetty walks in after a shower and discovers her... Ali looks away from the nudity as she gets dressed. And at this point, this is when Hetty confesses the first of many lies, which is that she once had a twin, but her sister was stillborn. Now, you did gloss over the fact that she looks at a bottle of pills, which I don't believe we ever see what they are. Uh, no, I don't think so. There has been speculation that Hetty is schizophrenic or that she has multiple personality disorder and she might use the pills to keep it under wraps. See, the the reading that I found was that she had borderline, which I don't know if borderline was really a thing. A thing back then. But like you don't you can't take pills for borderline. That's not something you can do. As anyone who's watched Crazy Ex Girlfriend knows. Right. <laughs> There's no pill for that. But I, I would peg that more as what was going on with her than schizophrenia. Yeah, I think schizophrenia is being not generous. It's maybe just suggesting, oh, she she seems to be crazy, and therefore she is probably schizophrenic, which is, you know, the way that we like to discuss mental illness in pop culture, which is to diminish it and misunderstand it and blanket statement it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Sam continues to call, although Hetty acts as a mediator, so sometimes she'll uh, she'll ask Allie whether or not she wants to take the call. Allie will usually say no, but she's also deleting calls from the answering machine before Allie returns home. So it seems like Sam has fallen off the map, and Allie's kind of okay with that. And you know why? It's because the women have adopted a dog, a puppy named Buddy. And Allie initially seems angry, but she warms up to it. They even have this nice family portrait kind of moment where they take a Polaroid of the three of them in bed. So, admittedly, you don't surprise a roommate with a dog. That's not okay. But Bridget Fonda was being a bit of a bitch when she saw that dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's afraid of her rent-controlled apartment getting taken away. (laughs) Oh, I thought she was just being a bitch. I mean, it's definitely, hey, you've only lived here for a short period of time and you've already introduced a dog into the mix. That's not cool. But yeah, I definitely took it to be, you know, I can't have a roommate and I absolutely can't have a roommate and a fucking dog in here. (laughs) Well, and I think Hetty meant it as a replacement for Sam. I think that was the whole basis of the dog. She wanted Sam gone. She wanted Allie's mind on something else. Mm hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's also a good way to cement her status there, right? Like right. the pair of them have this quote unquote child in the relationship now. So they're going to have to stick it out. Mm-hmm. The issue with watching this movie now is that, you know, because it's so popular, you know where it's going. You know that Hetty is nutso from the beginning. I mean, I guess you knew that in the 90s, you know, because like, that's just the premise of the film. But even watching this, I was just like, like our boy next door conversation, Joe. What did she think was going to happen? Like, what was her long plan for this? You mean Hetty's? Yeah. Where where did she see them in five years? It often feels like she's living very much in the moment. Like, I can hide these letters. I can dodge phone calls from my family. All I have to do is keep up the ruse that everything is okay. And as long as Allie doesn't start dating somebody new or getting something that will take her away from me, then we're all good. We don't have to worry about the future. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's not a great game plan, but uh, yeah, she doesn't seem to have a great long-term plan to go with. But it makes for some thrilling TV. 
does it. (laughs) (laughs) One of the first cues that something is up with Hetty is when Graham confesses that he thought he saw Allie earlier, but it turns out that it's just Hetty who's been wearing Allie's clothes. And inside the apartment when she returns home, Allie finds Sam. Wait, ladies, is that something that happens a lot, though, with women? Like, do do they like to wear each other's clothes? I mean, it's coincidental that they have the same size foot and body type in this movie, even though... Jennifer Jason Leigh is a foot shorter than... Yes, (laughs) I thought the exact same thing. (laughs) I mean, not so much for me, unless we have the same style and the same size. Well, and I don't understand how Sam thought that she was his girlfriend, because at that Mm -hmm. point, she hadn't cut her hair yet. Like, why would he see her clothing and think it was her when she's got long, dark hair? Well, she also pretends to be her on the phone a lot, but she doesn't sound like Bridget Fonda at all. Right. No, she's not a convincing impersonator until she literally does the makeover. But she's not trying to impersonate when she's on the phone. She just uses her own voice. (laughs) Again, she's not the best planner when it comes to all of this stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. So Sam has forced his way in. There's a lot of really important language that spills out of the mouths of men in this film. So he has forced his way into the apartment and he confesses his love. He chastises Ali for not answering his letters or when he returned his keys. And she's all like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about right now. So, gee, what a shocker. Something else is going on here. And meanwhile, Hetty is actually watching them from another part of the apartment. She calls Allie from her job at the bookstore. I do love when she's on the phone. (laughs) And that woman's like, can you tell me where the biographies are? And she's like, at the front! (laughs) Fuck off! Yeah, she comes out of of, like this library void and just puts her face right up next to uh, Hetty's face. Yeah. With that short, spiky, blonde hair look that I've discovered I do not like. (laughs) (laughs) This woman has a bit of a punchable face. Like, she is on the phone, lady. What are you doing? I know. She's not even wearing a uniform that suggests that she works at this bookstore, so I don't know why this woman even approaches her. Well, and also, again, my my mindset with this job thing, like, how much fucking money is she making at the bookstore? And also, how much rent is she being charged by Bridget Fonda? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially when Bridget Fonda seems to suggest that she just wants someone there. She doesn't actually need the money. mm But also, we do find out that her dad has been sending her money. Petty. Yes, on. that's true. I was going to say, but also, despite the fact that she was undersold by Tobolowski earlier, too. Sorry, um, Bridget Fonda, not Hetty. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Okay, so Allie and Sam resume dating, and they begin making love. Sexy, sexy, hot love. So much sex. So much sex. Yeah, and meanwhile, Hetty is stewing in the bath, and she's kicking the dog because, you know, her her delicate balance has been upset. That kick of that dog is... Yeah. Oh. It looks real. Like It, it really does. Like it's a real kick. <laughs> PETA, we need you on set. <laughs> yes. So Ali returns the next day after her sexy sex sex, and Hetty is angrily waiting for her on her bed in the dark, and... She complains that Allie shouldn't be so desperate. She doesn't need to find someone. She doesn't need to settle down with Sam because she could have anyone. Unlike Hetty, who is a vicious troll who lives under a bridge. (laughs) I mean, she thinks she is. She does, yeah. Which is a little surprising because she's still Jennifer Jason Lee. (laughs) Mm, Yes, because I I, I almost take back what I said earlier about Bridget Fonda because I'm like, obviously... 
very attractive people have insecurities too. Yes. I mean, we've discussed body dysmorphia before, so it's entirely possible that given also her psychological troubles that she does think that about herself. Yeah, the problem is that the film plays it as a bit of a shorthand. Like, considering how long this movie is, how Mm -hmm. little effort it does to help us understand who Bridget Fonda is before all of this goes down. It's like, all you need to know, she's a bit of a business lady, but she's not super great at it. And also, she makes bad choices with men. And go. Well, I even think with, like, the exploration of Hetty's mental illness, like, and I use the word exploration in quotation marks because... <laughs> yeah, it's generous. Like, I feel like we the most information we get about her is in the closing voiceover. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Just giving nothing to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, let's go back to work. So Mitchell is complimenting Ali's work ethic. He's squeezing her shoulders. So that's a B storyline that's happening in the background that becomes important later. And at home, after sex, Ali returns... More sex. More sex. (laughs) Ali returns from the bathroom to discover that Hetty is chatting up Sam as he lays naked in bed. And that night, she has difficulty sleeping. And she ends up going out into the hall because she hears something. And of course, it's Hetty masturbating in her room. To which I say, Ali, you are the one in the wrong here. Yes, Hetty left her door open, which is maybe something you shouldn't do if you're going to masturbate when you have a roommate. She wanted wanted Mm -hmm. to be seen, I think. Mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah. Like, it's like a reverse voyeurism, you know, where you get off on being... Well, is it still a voyeur if you you want to be watched? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, what? How would I know? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing, though. I I feel like the camera, like, ogles Jason Lee so much in this movie, and this is the one scene where I was like, do we need the boobs in this scene? I mean, do we need this scene, period, really? Um... I mean, it definitely confirms to us that Hetty is a sexual being. So we know that she has a fantasy life and that she is thinking about, we are meant to assume, Ali in a sexual fashion. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's unimportant, but yeah, does it need, I don't know. I'm always just like, do women sleep topless? Do they not have a tank top or something? Like, do we need to see Jennifer Jason Lee's boobs yet again? Well, I'm actually interested from a for a a female perspective on this like what did y'all think about all of the nudity in this movie and really the sex i feel like you get like one shot of weber's butt but otherwise it is even from bridget fonda's first scene it's her ass like her introduction did that feel like i don't know just ugly to you yeah there was nothing good about it for me i mean yeah it felt really uncomfortable but you know i thought maybe that's what they're trying to do to us that it is supposed to be uncomfortable mm-hmm I just felt like it was a thing of the times where a lot of movies were, there was a lot of nudity in movies. Yeah. And this is just, they were just trying to be like titillating or erotic about all of this. Right. It's a confusing movie because they show you certain things, but then they do it in like this erotic tone mm-hmm. when it's not necessarily an erotic thing that's happening. It's 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 weird. Yeah. That's the way that I felt as well. It's that... This is a film about two hot ladies that is clearly intended for male audiences. And the film just repeatedly wants to reiterate that they are young and fit and they, you know, have great breasts and hey, shouldn't you look at them? But also be mindful. There's danger here. People are going to get murdered. Dogs are going to get kicked out of windows here. (laughs) You're like, well, these are these are polarizing things. We also missed because um, before Hetty goes off to masturbate, she does kiss 
Allie Goodnight. But it's like, it's, again, I'm not really a kisser goodnighter of my friends. So it was just one of those things where I was like, huh. I think I missed that. I also missed that. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, So basically, like, after she's done talking to Sam, and she's like, okay, well, I'm going to head off. And she, like, kisses Allie on the neck. Okay, so that pays off then that final moment where she nearly murders Allie at the end. Some people weren't watching the fucking movie. (laughs) You know what? I tuned out whole (laughs) chunks of this movie. (laughs) No, you actually said some, uh, uh, mentioned a bit of exposition earlier, and I was like, don't remember that. (laughs) (laughs) There's just a lot of stuff where you constantly wonder, do I need to pay attention to this? Is it going to pay off? (laughs) There's a fair amount of checkoffs in this, much like The Boy Next Door. But there's also a bunch of stuff where you just think, uh, I mean, it could become important later, but do I care? (laughs) So masturbation, uh, uncomfortable. I'm going to go back to bed. And then the next morning, it's Allie who's very cool towards Hetty. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like not only did I not appreciate the fact that you were talking to my man last night, and then I couldn't sleep, and then you were masturbating, and now I'm just very upset. So Allie is kind of the not cool one here. Did y'all find her justified in this? Or is it just a reasonable, like, like, because of her experience with Sam and her partner, that she would behave this way? It's just like a reaction. I think it's bad directing. (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, in the early 90s, you know, the climate was that you couldn't get too erotic. You know, you couldn't get, you you couldn't have too much nudity. So I think with this movie, it's like they were trying to push the envelope a little bit. And it, it was just executed very poorly. You know, all of it, the masturbation, the sex scenes, it doesn't really flow. And, you know, so Allie's responses don't flow either. Have you seen Basic Instinct? Yes. Because this wouldn't have been filming when Basic, like before or after Basic Instinct came out. But I feel like there was so much, I feel like there was a lot of sex in movies around this time. Like this was the kicker offer of female, specifically female nudity everywhere in adult entertainment. Well, I mean, you know, adult, you know, not porn, but like adult entertainment. Entertainment for adults. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, Ketchum, that there's definitely an effort to lean into the sexy female nudity. But in this particular instance, it does feel like, okay, well, we just need something that's going to push Allie towards Sam so that she will get on board with the idea that they should leave that they should initiate the process of moving away from Hetty. this is the last scene where they are somewhat normal to each other and then at this point she will only be more suspicious of Hetty. Hmm. Mm-hmm. so it just kind of seems like okay well we need to get Allie out of the house so that she and sam can look at new apartments which is exactly what they do and of course this is the moment where we discover that the puppy has apparently fallen out the window through a Hole in a grate that can be attributed to both Hetty and Sam. Because Sam was fixing it, Hetty left the window open. And it's never actually confirmed, but it's like, we all know. She killed that dog. Like, Hetty killed this dog. She clearly, like, didn't just leave it open. Like, she pushed it through the grate and killed it. And they show its corpse. Yeah, that was horrifying. I'm, like, traumatized from that. Mm. I did not need to see that. It's not even a dog either. It's a puppy. Like, yeah. This is a tiny yeah. dog, and it's I mean, yeah, it's, it's a lot upsetting. Think, yeah. <laughs> Traumatized. Uh, yeah. I mean, can you imagine? Well, actually, that's something too. Do you think the film is trying to make us like think that maybe she didn't do it? 
Do you think that's why we don't get to see her push this dog out? Or do you think it's just the director being like, you know what? I'm not going to show a dog get killed. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I don't think you can knowingly show an animal getting thrown off of a, <laughs> like, what? What are they? The 12th story? Well, but no, not even like, like I'm not saying show the animal get thrown off. But like, there's an easy way to cut that where she, like, kicks it. You hear a yelp and then, like, you know, it, like, echoes away. But, like, it's off screen, you know? To, like, confirm that it was her that did it. I think they're still trying to play it both ways. Like, oh, it could be the way that she's saying, or it could be that she fully killed this dog. Mm. For me, it was a flashback to Fatal Attraction and the uh, the rabbit the in the bunny. pot. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, to, to let us know that this is an unstable person, they're unpredictable, and they will kill. Yeah. Yeah, and I was looking at the window and the bars, and I just couldn't figure out how the dog could get through that yeah. on its own. <laughs> so... She clearly... In my mind, she it. picks up the dog and just launches it off. <laughs> no, I, that's what oh I God. thought. Because at first she's like, oh, it was my fault. But then later when, like, you know, she thinks that Allie might leave, then she does that under her breath line where it's like, well, it was all Sam's fault that the dog died. Yeah. Yeah. So the next day, Allie finds that she has missing clothes that she discovers in Hetty's closet. But then it turns out that they're actually just identical clothes. So <laughs> Hetty has gone out and purchased the exact same items, and they both have duplicates now. How much time must that have taken to, like, find all those clothes at whatever various stores that she went to to buy them? Because <laughs> they didn't have the, I mean, they had the internet, but it wasn't the internet. Yeah. As we see later. She probably used her software. <laughs> it's been saved in the computer. I would say maybe it was like a certain store's brand. And maybe she just went to that store and got those clothes. That's the only she thing went that would to make the mall. sense to me. Was, she like went to Dillard's. <laughs> right. Oh, do you like this blazer? It's Versace. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when we see the puppy chow in this movie, it it made me think of showgirls while she's like clutching the puppy chow yes. i didn't catch the puppy chow part i didn't yeah, either I it was actually. like on the ground oh it's yeah she brings in a giant bag of dog food at one point oh, <laughs> god <laughs> we know where esther house got it from <laughs> from single so all these movies from the mid 90s <laughs> just ripped off single white female yeah yes yeah. I guess it was such an influential movie. Clearly. So like, you know. <laughs> I mean, not, let's not forget this is a cultural milestone. People. Wait, can, I, I do want to mention something because like, the, uh, sorry, the name of our chat was making me think of it. Um, there is a single white female too. It's a direct DVD sequel from, I think, the mid 2000s. But what I love is it's called Single White 2. Uh, sorry, Single White. Single White Female 2, The Psycho. As oh, if... wow. Just <laughs> really on the nose. <laughs> Has anyone seen it? No. No. I feel like it stars Mila Kunis. <laughs> no, that's American Psycho 2. I was saying they would probably make really good double features. A single white female 2, <laughs> Basic Instinct 2, and American Psycho 2. Oh my gosh. Uh, oh my god. Having seen Basic Instinct 2 and covered it, I would not recommend no. that for anyone. And Showgirls 2, Penny from Heaven. Yes. <laughs> Where is our fatal attraction to? That's what I want to oh. know. <sighs> Put the bunny back in the box. Hmm. Okay, so let's cut back to work, because that's still a thing that this movie wants to do. So, (laughs) 
Allie is at her work gala, which is a thing that she wanted Mitchell to do so that she could get more business, but he continues to refuse her request for referrals. And then he sexually assaults her as she shows him how to operate the computer program. So she whacks him in the dick and she runs home. But we do get the delectable line from Tobolowski: I've been a good boy, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> what this movie thinks of straight men is just so great. Well, that's a gay man wrote it. I'm just glad she punched him and left. <laughs> that we saw her, like, doing that. Yeah. It feels like this lingers a little bit too much, even to the point where, you know, he's rubbing her shoulders. He could have just said, I've been a good boy, haven't I? And she could have just whacked him. But we actually have to see him put his hand under her blouse and onto her breast. And then unzip his pants and she turns around because he thinks that she's going to give him head which is maybe foreshadowing what Hetty does to sam i don't think the movie's that smart but i do love her eye acting when she realizes what's happening like it's like it's just like a flip of a switch yeah she's like all right i gotta get the fuck out of here <laughs> she is an expert at playing along this girl yeah so unfortunately this does mean that she's back to square one professionally she's She's very upset when she gets home, and Hetty offers to fix it. So she calls Mitch at home, she threatens him, and all of this prompts Allie to say, Geez, Hetty, I hope you never get mad at me. I wrote that line down too! Spoiler alert, she does. <laughs> In case you just didn't know where this movie was heading. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta load it up with lines like that. So then the two ladies say, you know what? What we need is a salon day. So they go to the hairstylist and Hetty literally gets the exact same cut and color as Allie. And Allie is like, holy shit. Okay, I am out of the frying pan and into the fire because this bitch is crazy. I do like this scene. I think it's really well done. The reveal is great. I'm sure it was in the trailer. Like, I'm sure this was a trailer moment. Mm -hmm. But I would have freaked out in that damn salon. Yeah, like, the fact that she is even able to keep her cool is surprising. Well, I noticed when Allie got her hair cut, it looked exactly the same. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what has she been doing in that chair? Have, have y'all ever seen the, uh, it's the very Brady sequel when, or maybe it's the first one when Carol goes to get her hair done, and it's, like, David Spade's the gay barber, and, it, yeah, it's just the exact same fucking thing after he takes the chainsaw <laughs> to her hair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it looks so good! So this, understandably, freaks Allie out. So when they get back home and Hetty is in the bathroom, Allie promptly sneaks back into her room once again, and she discovers a box of keepsakes, including Sam's letter, the keys that he sent back, as well as new stories about Hetty's dead twin sister, who drowned at a family picnic. Bum, bum, bum! <laughs> oh my god, the sister, she was real, she died. I respect the movie for restraining itself. Although the, the score was done by Howard Shore, who's like, you know, done like the Lord of the Rings movies and a bunch of Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've talked mm -hmm. about him on a couple episodes. Yeah, because we've done Cronenberg twice. Mm -hmm. And will again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so this is when Allie decides that she's going to start following Hetty and we get possibly the weirdest single scene in this entire movie. It's the sex club. She follows her oh, to man. a sex club, but this is the least interesting sex club I have ever seen depicted on screen. Well, no one's naked. No one is naked. Half of the people look like they were just extras that were pulled in off the street. They're wearing regular clothes. Mm -hmm. And then half of them are in full leather regalia. 
Well, no, that's yeah, I was like, so wait, is it a sex club? Is it a BDSM club? Or yeah. when we see Hetty talking to the guy, it's just a bar. It's just a bar. Yeah. Like, what is yeah. this club? There's like no theme to this club. Right. But also we have to talk about the fact that Enigma is playing in this club, mm-hmm. like the sexiest top 40 song of the 90s. <laughs> it's a really good song. <laughs> And I'm I'm also dying to know what that sound was in the club. There's like that flashing light and that crazy sound. Chainsaw. I cannot that keeps repeating <laughs> over and over again. Like what is happening in this club? I think they're filming a sexy video. There's <laughs> nothing happening in this club. There is no sex of any nature. And that woman gives up really easily. Right. <laughs> so that woman seems to be predatory well did you initially think that she was actually having sex like that man was fucking her from behind Mm -hmm. absolutely but then she just walks away and she's clearly fully clothed like she couldn't have been having sex and it's not like his dick is out or anything admittedly i do not know the ins and outs of straight sex so maybe they they were just grinding yeah (laughs) just hanging out watching and grinding together Mm -hmm. so so weird so Ali looks at this group of people. Yeah, there's flashing light, Enigma, and this woman just immediately latches onto her. And I couldn't tell if it was because, are we meant to assume that it's because Hetty has been here before and she has mistaken her for someone? Mm. Or is it just that it's oh. Ali is super fucking hot and every woman is attracted to her? I took it as the latter. If the intention was the former, I like it, but it was not made clear. The scene is too short for me, and it's very confusingly structured. I kind of thought that we were going to see something more significant. Like, we clearly get audio from the guy at the bar that Hetty has been using Ali's name, which is part of the reason Mm -hmm. why I thought maybe people thought that she was interchangeable. But then the scene is just over, and Ali goes back to her apartment, and she confesses everything to Graham, and he's like, oh, that bitch is crazy, you gotta get rid of her. And the scene is never referenced again. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, that's the gay tea scene, by the way, where he's like, I can be butch when I have to. I get it from my mother. Right. Dude. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. I, yes, I wrote that, down that line. Because <laughs> y'all are going to hate me. I didn't realize he was gay until that line came out of his mouth. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not really good at picking up on cues. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Well, there was a line that I guess you guys might have missed. It's when she's bringing Hetty into the building for the first time, and she mentions him, and she says he's gay. Yep. She actually says it to her. (laughs) Caught (laughs) red-handed. Yeah, so, of course, Hetty has miraculously followed Allie home unintentionally, and she hears everything through the vent. So now she knows that Graham is not on her side. So, well, Allie ends up calling Hetty's dad from information that she got when she was searching Hetty's room earlier. Not sure why Allie decided to follow her to the club and then come back and make the phone call, as opposed to making the phone call when Hetty went out to the bar, but whatever. Well... Sorry, this is also when Graham tells Allie about the Chekhov snooping vent, and that's A, serves no purpose. B, that can be cut. Yeah, like we as the audience already know, because we have seen multiple shots of them having a conversation and the camera zooms on the vent. Like, Mm -hmm. we know. We don't need that confirmed. (laughs) Telling Allie does nothing to the plot of this movie. Like, it's not like she's like, oh shit, she might be listening. There's none of that. Because we immediately pretty much, like, I mean, she figures it out later, but it's not because of the vent. No. Mm -mm. 
Well, I thought it was because, so later she goes down and she tapes it up, right, to stop the sound. Mm -hmm. So later Uh... when she's tied up, nobody can hear her. Well, but that's Hetty, though, right? Yeah, like, it's important for Hetty to know, but Graham doesn't Mm -hmm. need to tell Allie. Unless the movie thinks... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Hear me out. That Hetty wouldn't understand what the vent was doing, so she also needed to hear Graham tell her that just so she understood what was actually happening through the vent. God. That just means this Who movie knows? thinks that we're even stupider. <laughs> or or it's meant for us. It's meant for the audience. I think it's meant for us. Just to confirm. So in case you couldn't tell, yeah, this is a thing that's happening. So while Ollie's on the phone with Hetty's dad, while she's leaving him a message, because no one actually speaks directly on the phone, they only leave messages for each other, Hetty has snuck into Gaber's apartment, and she beats him with the fireplace poker crowbar that he uses to keep the door locked, and then, I love this, her bloody clothes, which she leaves in the (gasps) sink as she showers, she uses her period as an excuse. (laughs) Is also, that what that was? Yeah. I didn't know. Oh my god. Yeah, no, it's all Graham's blood, and it's a blood-filled sink, and she's like, oh yeah, my period. Also, more tits. Oh my god, I missed that. Yeah. I don't think any of us, like, we, I think all of us were checking out so much during this movie. <laughs> <laughs> the sexual thriller of the century kept all of our attention so well. Yeah, I, w- I was smoking a bit of weed <gasps> in Portland, so... <laughs> God. That was my experience. <laughs> so wait, this really slow 107-minute film probably already like, it was like, made much slower by that fact. I mean, it was pretty fun for the first half, and then it got really serious <laughs> yeah, when right. like, the, the mental illness stuff was introduced. I would argue that it's the opposite, that the end of the movie is very silly, and then the beginning is really serious. Just mm. different sense of humor. Mm. It just felt very gay for me for the first like half. Mm-hmm. Right. I saw them kind of being in like a relationship. Yeah, the gay kind of levels off at around this point. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is when Ellie tries to pull the trigger. She says, Hetty, bitch, you gotta go. I can't have you here anymore. And Hetty goes off on her. So she tells Ellie that Sam is going to cheat on her again. She calls Ellie so fucking weak. Wrote that down. I kind of <laughs> loved. I felt bad, but I kind of loved it. I mean, she, she needed a good kick in the pants to, like, you know, take action. And this is really what sets her off. Yeah, yeah. And of course, instead of getting a good confrontation between the two of them, we get a phone call. So uh, Hetty goes to answer the phone. I'm not sure why, if fucking Allie knew that the dad might call back, why she would let Hetty pick up the phone, but whatever. Yeah, Allie is real stupid. (laughs) She knows that she's fucking nuts now. And she's just like, all right, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. So Hetty pretends that it's not her father, and then she leaves the phone off the hook, and then Allie just goes to bed. Because, you know, you're afraid of your roommate, but yeah, sure, just go to bed. And <laughs> that's when Sam calls, and he he wants to talk to Allie, but Hetty more or less puts him off, and then she discovers in the middle of the night that she wants to go and get some dick. So she puts on a trench coat, she goes to Sam's apartment, And she uh, proceeds to give him head. And even though he realizes that it is not his fiancée at that point, he, a grown man with a, what, 90 pounds soaking wet woman with her lips wrapped around his dick, she, she just finishes. 
Well, I read this as, because he realizes it and then comes, like, immediately. And so I was just under the impression that the orgasm was so intense that he couldn't do anything? Yeah, I felt like he was just very close. Yeah. And then it was just happening at the same time he was discovering it wasn't really Allie. And it just happened. And he's like, might as well finish it. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, I, 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 I do not think there was a conscious decision to be like, my, well, again, I'm trying to think, me in this situation, like, what, I mean, it's a very unique situation, granted, but like... Well, when this exact situation happened to you, Trace, how did you handle it? I'm, I'm trying to think, so like, you, even if you're about to come, like, you can still, like, throw the person off and you'll just come as that's happening? I don't know. I was more interested in his post-orgasm reaction because he just kind of, like, sat there. Like, he didn't freak out soon enough for me. Well, I think he's mm -hmm. actually stunned. Like, yeah. He, yeah. he almost seems to shut down. He becomes nonverbal until she starts digging into him a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Do y'all feel sympathy for Sam in either this moment or in the movie at all? Uh, during this moment, yeah. I mean, it's a confusing scene. But, I mean, it seems like for the most part, he just didn't want this to happen. And we see that in his reaction afterwards, where he's just like, this is a horrible thing. Right. I feel like he's been nice to her, but he has not flirted with her. There isn't a reason for her to be acting this way. So he's really confused. And I think he's trying to be a good guy the whole movie after the opening part where he cheated on her. I did have a little, a little piece of trivia, though, that goes with this, which is Ooh. that Bridget Fonda actually is her own body double if that makes sense oh really? so it's it's actually it's actually bridget fonda who's naked walking to the bed from the back and then the other shot is jennifer jason lee and they said it's because jennifer jason lee was still in hair and makeup so they were like we need to get the shot <laughs> right so it's like jennifer jason lee pretending to be bridget fonda played by bridget fonda pretending to be Jen jennifer jason lee <laughs> <laughs> oh, that almost makes it so much more interesting. <laughs> almost. <laughs> and then we get the glorious ball shot, which I did not sign up for. Yes! Weber. I know. It always bothers me when we get the backside like shot of a man's naked body. And it's like, okay. Because we learned, um, we did an episode on Cursed, and we got to get a, a lesson on cock socks. Which is what helps, like, it basically, like, supports the penis, but, like, also, like, holds it up so that you don't get the ball shot from between the legs. This film clearly could not afford one. <laughs> well, no, because they spent all $60 million on, I guess, Bridget Fonda. Mm -hmm. And that right. apartment. And that laptop. And that laptop. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, yeah, I, I was, I didn't pause it, but I wanted to. Well, Casio did. <laughs> <laughs> I was sending a little bit of commentary to some people while I was watching this, like, through video. But You're not going to believe this. Yeah, and I paused it, and then I replayed it over video, and I was like, look at this. I did not sign up to see this. Here's a shot of Steven Weber's ball. Yeah, it's at one hour and 12 minutes for anybody who oh wants my gosh. to see it. <laughs> um, I've never really found Steven Weber attractive, but I actually did find him attractive in this movie. It's just the long hair. I don't, I don't do the long hair on men, but... Again, as much female nudity as we get in this film, I will at least credit it for giving us that. Whether or not you want it, at least it's it's a very slight attempt at equal opportunity. 
Yeah, I appreciate the fact that it doesn't try to pretend like, oh, okay, well, he was actually wearing, you know, underwear during all of this or something. Like, it's always very frustrating when you see sex scenes where actors are half clothed or something. It's It just feels disingenuous. Mm-hmm. So at this point, they have it out, and Hetty's like, well, you know, now you need to be done with Allie because I'm going to tell her, and you can't do anything about it. And he puts on his clothes, and he says, actually, I'm going to go and tell her, which is, to me, maybe the best thing that Sam does in this, is that he's willing to accept that something bad has happened, and he wants to be the one to address it. This is the movie giving him a redeeming moment. And of course, whether or not that works for you is, you know, it depends on you. Yeah. Because the people that die in this movie, it's the rapist and it's the cheater. Yep. So. <laughs> and the puppy. It's, and the puppy. But so, so th- two of them, I feel like the movie is saying this is, because, okay, I'm going to bring up a Tyler Perry movie. Oh, God. Have y'all ever, and I haven't seen it, but I read all about it when it came out. But have y'all seen Tyler Perry's Temptation? No. I have not. Okay. I know about it, but I've never seen it because I know about it. It's the one with Kim Kardashian. Yeah. That movie, yeah, it's about a woman who cheats on her husband. And basically, like, it's, you know, typical Tyler Perry shit. But then the movie, the end of the movie is that she is left alone because her husband won't take her back. And the uh, the boyfriend, like, she, like, leaves him. But she's also been given AIDS. <laughs> and so the message of that movie is if you're a cheater, you're going to be alone with AIDS. And so watching this movie, I was like, okay. Cheaters and rapists, good to die. Yeah. Which is normally something I would be in full support of, but it doesn't seem like the movie is actually leaning into that idea enough because it tries to give these redemptive moments yes. to both men. To both of them. And I'm okay with Sam, not okay with the rapist, but we'll get no, there. No, So this is the end of Sam because uh, Hetty can't have him stealing her show, so she slow-mos backhands him in the eye with her stiletto and kills him. I love this. Do y'all think this actually would have killed him? No. Absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) It probably would have fractured his eye. (laughs) It is one of my new favorite deaths in a movie, though. Mm -hmm. That was amazing. Yeah. It only works because she has a heel of a certain size, too. Like, can you imagine if she had worn a flat to this sexual (laughs) encounter? Well, that's also her impulsivity, you know, because she throws the first shoe at the door and misses. I'm sorry, she throws it at him and misses and hits the door. But then, yeah, it's like she just grabs the first thing she can to hit him in the head with it. Because I don't think she intended to kill him. No, I think she she wanted to stop him. Mm-hmm. And it, she just happened to kill him. All right, so uh, this really sets her off. She goes into full-blown crazy mode. So when Allie wakes up the next morning, Hetty has wiped down the entire apartment. <laughs> and and her, her period clothes are out of the sink. <laughs> yes, yep, correct. Any evidence that she was there is being cleaned up. And she goes down to the basement to collect a various human-sized luggage for later on. <gasps> <laughs> This the bit when she gets in it and she's like to yeah. make sure that someone can fit in it and then she's like yeah like she basically it's basically like a a thumbs mm-hmm. up like we're good to go yeah <laughs> I think that's my favorite scene of the whole movie it's so me funny. too me too <laughs> anytime you can see someone test driving their murder transportation <laughs> luggage yes. <laughs> Well, because we, we we so rarely get to see that in movies, you know, because they like to skip over that. So that we're actually seeing her, like, plot this out in real time. I was like, good on you, movie. Good mm-hmm. on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So upstairs, Allie is preparing breakfast when she learns that Sam has died. And she runs to the bathroom to vomit. And that's where she sees a bloody high heel, which I think is actually one of the best shots of the film. 
Mm -hmm. It's just a heel in the foreground with just a little bit of blood around one of the heels. Well, I also like that she finds out about the death through, like, a news broadcast. It's like one of those things where it's like someone, like a character calls a character in the movie and they're like, turn on the news! And then they just turn on the TV and like it's just on the news, on the exact news report that they should be watching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. This one is especially stupid though because they literally say the name of the building that he And the apartment in, number! And the apartment number. <laughs> and then she calls and she says, hi, I'm looking for Sam in the same apartment number. Right, <laughs> right. It's like, bitch, you know where he lived. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> Uh, okay so this is when hetty returns and she comes across ali in the bathroom ali i like it so they both use feminine health issues as excuses so ali says oh i think i might just be pregnant (laughs) (laughs) i miss that she says i'm gonna go see graham he called while you were gone which of course is actually a tip off to hetty because graham be dead or so we think well no that's yeah we all think he's dead that is the one reveal in the movie that I was like, okay, cool. Well, and I like, too, that we assume that he's dead and we don't get that confirmation. And then the film plays off of this as, oh, okay, well, now Hetty knows. Now Hetty's on to her. It actually trusts us to figure out that Graham is dead. And then the movie pulls the rug out on us later. Yeah. It's nice. Mm-hmm. So, yes, this is when Hetty just comes clean. She says that she has killed Sam. <laughs> And she has the immortal line, Allie, he came in my mouth and then he beat me because I wanted to tell you. Oh, wait, no, 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 no. (laughs) I have this exact fucking quote. It's just slightly different. He came in my mouth and then he tried to beat the shit out of me because I wanted to tell you. I just have to beat the shit out of me. (laughs) Despite the fact that she has no wounds at all. (laughs) But I do appreciate her, like, expeditionist with, like, you know Sam's dead, don't you? All right. Yeah. Come on, bitch. Let's go. The ruse is up. <laughs> Let's just move it along. Okay, but this is the moment. I love this. This is the one. Because, okay, the editor of this movie also edited Reanimator. And I expected a bit more playfulness in the editing. And we don't get that except for the climax. And this is when it just cuts to her in the chair tied up. Yeah. And it's just really funny. Well, just before she does that, we do get a bit of an exposition dump, but it's it's very helpful because this is where Hetty confirms that she's been plotting this for much longer than we anticipated. Mm. Because not only does she announce that she was seen leaving Sam's apartment, but that she was mistaken for Allie, but also that Hetty reconfirms all the details where she's not on the lease. So there's no evidence that she was living there and no one in the building has seen her, which is not entirely true. There was that one guy who saw them in the elevator together. Right. Mm. But for the most part, we recognize that Ali has really not thought this through very well because <laughs> she <laughs> she has more or less protected Hedy's alibi. Right. So then she's hustled upstairs to Graham's apartment at gunpoint, and then this is where she gets tied up with Tim. Mm-hmm. This is also where I was like, I'm kind of done with the plot recap, so I'm going to cover the next little bit a little more quickly. <laughs> So a protracted series of near escapes follows, including a loud TV set to alert the neighbors, an early era email asking for help, and the arrival of Mitchell when Ali's malware wipes his company's finances. Because that is still a fucking subplot in this movie. (laughs) And good on her for having that fucking, like, protection against, like, not getting paid. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, the, the note of the, on the computer screen is, like, your payment is past due um, if you don't pay in 24 hours. It's like a fucking ransom. If yeah. you don't pay in 24 hours, uh, <laughs> this will all go away. But when we cut to Tobolowski, he's just, like, trying to rape another woman. Yeah. 
he's giving another woman a massage in his office and then he just gets really irate that he has to come out and check on something he's a busy guy <laughs> rapist be raping <laughs> it's not funny but it is also in the mix with this is uh when Allie tries to send the email and Hetty discovers her, she almost slits her throat. And the only way that Allie keeps herself alive is by kissing Hetty on the lips. I just want to know if anybody has done any cosplay with this scene. Uh, with, like, the knife um, and the way she's got that, like, slit on her neck. I'm sure the wig <laughs> is easy to find, too. And <laughs> wig. whatever fucking hideous dress that Hetty is wearing. I don't know what this dowdy thing is. Yeah, yeah, it's deeply disappointing considering that the fashion is a little bit high fashion throughout most of this film. It's like your costuming tipping point to really confirm that Hetty has lost her mind. Is she just starts wearing a sack dress? <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that, that's what it is. Just sad. I would have liked her to have gone like boss lady. Oh, I, I kept hoping for combat boots to show up, but they just didn't. Because that was kind of like the thing, the dress and the combat boots. Nice. In the 90s. It is interesting because I, mean, I think with the haircut, Jason Lee does present physically as very feminine, you know, in her mm -hmm. introduction. And so with the haircut, like it gets a little bit more, like, a little bit less feminine. And then with the out, whatever she's wearing at the end, because I don't know how to describe it. It's like less and less what would be the societal norm of womanly or feminine so it's like she's becoming more i don't know if i want to use the word butch because it's not really the right word that i'm looking for but more gay as the movie goes on even though the movie is making it less like making the well no no because they fucking kiss each other so i don't know it's just it's just weird it's like the more gay she becomes the more crazy and evil she gets mm -hmm. yeah i mean welcome back to 1992 yeah mm-hmm I don't know. I kind of thought it was insane chic where she's just like, oh, this outfit is functional. It allows me to kill people and I still got a bit of body in it. Hmm. It's not good, but. Hmm. So Mitchell ends up following Hetty up. It's very contrived. I did mm -hmm. not care for this at all, but he somehow manages to get his way into the apartment. He discovers that Allie is locked up. He has a tussle. Wait, also a good shot, though, where he, like, walks in, and it's just her, like, planking on the ground, taped up. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> just can't even keep her upright anymore. We just gotta lay her flat on the ground. Well, maybe she likes it. I mean, we've established the fact that she sleeps on the floor. Well, maybe that's because a rapist is coming in to see her, so it's just good to have her just, like, on display. Yeah. <sighs> So this is where Mitchell gets his heroic moment. He manhandles Hetty a little bit. They tussle. He thinks he gets the upper hand, but of course, Hetty smacks him in the head. Then she puts a pillow over his face and shoots him a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> I did love that there is no ceremony to this. She's just like, oh, this guy? Yeah, I got to put him down. I mean, I'm okay with that. If there's any character that didn't need to die unceremoniously, it's this one. But yeah, when she did the pillow, it's not even just one shot. She shoots no. him twice with that pillow. No. We don't see either of the shots because this is where the camera confirms that Graham's body is in his bathtub. And we still think that he's dead at this point. There's also a very sad shot of the cat, who is very much alive, but just chilling with the body. <laughs> yeah. Made me sad. Eventually, we manage to get the upper hand on Hetty. 
Allie gives her a slash across the stomach, and then they start to fight. This is where Graham wakes up. He gets involved. The fight spills into the hallway and then into the elevator. We've got guns going off. We've got elevator doors getting slammed into people's arms. It's actually all pretty good. I like the physicality of the elevator portion of mm-hmm. this fight. Well, and the choking is actually really done well, too, because she looks like she's actually being choked out. Yes. Yeah, I thought she died, for real. I thought mm-hmm. she was dead. Yeah, and to be honest, it almost would have been better if the movie had have had the balls to have just done it. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, Ali effectively looks dead. You think that they're going to go for the screwdriver, but she doesn't make it. She just passes out. Mm-hmm. And then we get down to the basement. Hetty begins to prep the incinerator, which made me cackle with delight because I thought the film was going to go there. Okay, no. That Hetty does not get thrown in that furnace. I felt so cheated. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's almost an unforgivable sin. Do not show me an incinerator and then not put somebody <laughs> in it. Yeah. So there's a little bit more cat and mouse because, of course, Allie is not dead, but she has hidden away. And Hetty just gets increasingly more irate. You know, where are you? Don't leave me alone. Blah, blah, blah. And it goes on for far too long, but that's okay. Is this when she has the line? I wrote this down. I've never met anyone so scared of being a woman. Oh, I didn't hear that. That's definitely a line. I just thought that was really weird. Hmm. Like a denial of sexuality? Mm-hmm. Weird. But, which, again, though, is weird because up until this point, like, or I guess up until the, the high heel stuff, Hetty has been, that's how I would describe her, not Allie. Like, what, what does that even mean for her to tell her that? Maybe she's projecting. Maybe. Maybe she's a slut, just like your Just like your mother. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a scream quote. <laughs> so at this point, Ali drops down from the ceiling to, oh, hey, check off screwdriver, stab Hetty in the back a couple of times. And that's more or less it for our climax. Wait, she swings down, like fucking like knees on this pipe, like swinging yeah. like Tarzan and a monkey. But the way the shot is framed is the furnace or incinerator, whatever it is, whatever it is, is in frame, like right behind them. Mm-hmm. But they opt instead for a kind of tragic death where she's like slowly holding her and watches her die. Yep. Because it's ladies. Can't have one woman pitch another woman into incinerator. You've got to have <laughs> them, you know, die in each other's arms. Which is, as Cassio would say, very gay. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of fading out at this point in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, because at this point, it's like, this is still on. Yeah. yeah. I thought that this film was going to end when they started fighting up in Graham's apartment. And well, then I thought it was going to end when they were in the elevator. <laughs> you know what would have been a poetic death is if she had kicked her out the window that the puppy was kicked out of. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, this ending just feels entirely too protracted, and I don't care at Mm -hmm. this point. Like, I just want the movie to be over. But it's not, because we have a voiceover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm not going to lie, all I have is Allie reflects in ponderous voiceover, the film finally mercifully ends. Well, she, like, forgives her. She's, like, forgives her for killing Sam. Mm -hmm. (sighs) All right, we can talk a little bit before we kind of, like, wrap things up, but... It's tricky, because Hetty is obviously, like, mentally ill. She is suffering from something. I'm still going to say borderline mixed with maybe something else. So you don't want to blame her, because it's like, well, she's mentally ill. But it's also like, she made all these decisions. She fucking killed people. I don't want to forgive her. Right. Well, this film has an issue with 
anyone being entirely bad. And you could say that it's a bit commendable that no single one person, no rapist, no cheater, no mentally ill person who murders a bunch of individuals is all bad. Mm -hmm. That's almost respectable. And yet the film is unwilling to put the time and the energy into properly developing any of its characters. I would argue even Ali and fleshing them out into three-dimensional people. So at the end, it just becomes a lot of senseless violence to me. Mm-hmm. Like, I can understand why people responded to this film, because it is a little bit lewd, it's got that gratuitous nudity, it's got the, you know, ooh, killer lesbian thing going on for it. But at the end of the day, this just feels half-baked. It's like men making a lecherous erotic thriller about lesbians for straight men. But again, I'm going to keep going back to this gay screenwriter. That is what's puzzling to me. Well, it's a gay man writing lesbians. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Well, and that also could be a studio thing, too, because this is also a major motion picture from a major studio. Right. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about the representation of queerness in this film. Like you said, Ketchum, much less the mentally ill. But then, I mean, can you, can't you say that about most movies where it's a mentally ill person, like, killing people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I felt like there was the whole psycho-lesbian trope thing happening, but it's still it's a very confusing movie. Because we don't actually know... Like, Hetty's relationship with Allie, or to her, is very confusing, because we don't know if she is, like, attracted to her, does she want to have her as a twin... Well, mm-hmm. yeah, because the movie posits that she didn't really go nuts until her twin drowned. Mm-hmm. And I thought up until the end of this movie that she drowned her twin. But the voiceover basically says that wasn't the case. That feels like a retcon to me. Well, that's yeah, that's what I'm saying. The movie is retroactively wanting us to feel bad for her. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I like that. I just don't think it's believable. I mean, if you're going to create your villain... Just go in on it. Mm-hmm. Because there's also a suggestion, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought I heard at one point when Hetty is doing her exposition about all the things that she's done, doesn't she also say that she has done this with another woman in Tampa? I don't know. I missed that. I missed that. Okay. Yeah, I thought that she had said, when I did this with the last woman, it didn't end well. The suggestion being that she's tried to stay with women that she either is sexually attracted to and she can't acknowledge it or that she's tried to get close to. And when they disappoint her, it's like stepfather kind of thing where she says, okay, it's not going to work. Now I've got to put you in this body bag and I'll move on to the next person. I don't want to like, I'm going to label her. Do do y'all think she's a lesbian? Or do you think she's a straight woman who is just obsessing? Right, I think she has borderline personality disorder. I think she's hypervigilant. I think it all stems from she's missing that twin, and so she's trying to recreate that, and she's just gone overboard, mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously, with the haircut and everything. I think I think she really is just trying to have a twin as opposed to being obsessed with her in a deeper way. But then how do we explain the masturbation scene? And the kissing, which, like, calms her. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that she's lesbian, but I think she could be queer. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's hard to tell. Well, it almost seems like the film, like, the narrative that is being proposed is what you've described, Ketchum, 
is that she just wants a twin and that's why she's obsessed with Allie. But I feel like as queer audiences, we implicitly read a lot of these coded texts into it, right? Where we say, oh, well, but you're also acting like a little bit of a clingy lesbian. And Mm -hmm. we project some of that onto the screen. Mm -hmm. I'd be very interested to know if anybody said like, oh, are these girls a little more than friends back in 1992 when this film came out? Right. Because it does feel like we've canonized this as a queer property in the interceding couple of decades as a result. I will confess mm-hmm. that I was actually surprised by how queer it was. I thought it was going to be one of those ones where it's like, oh, it's just a crazy girl. And we're just going to assign it a queer reading, you know, just because we can. But no, mm-hmm. no, no, it's it, it's there. Yeah, there's more there than I thought. Yeah, I thought there was going to be a little bit of like lesbian undertones. But right. then it was like... There was a lot going on. And then we had the gay neighbor, which I wasn't expecting. Not at all. Mm -hmm. So I was surprised. I think the way I view it is that borderline, that she she has um, really blurry lines. She, you know, is bad with boundaries. You know, if you want to dive into that illness. I mean, that's how I view it as opposed to it being lesbian at all. She she's just way out of line with everything, Mm -hmm. with all of them all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I'm happy for the conversation that we've had because I do think it's worth having. I just kind of wish that the film merited it a little bit more. Like, I've been Mm -hmm. more interested in how we've talked about it than actually watching the film itself. Well, I think this is... Because the film's already kind of been remade with... I haven't seen it, but shout out to Cody. uh, The Roommate with... Oh, Minka Kelly. Yes, and Leighton Meester. But it's like a watered-down PG-13 one, and they're in college. But I actually do think that if you remade this today, you could do this because, you know, we're looking at this movie through a 2019 lens and we've mentioned, oh, but 1992, because it gives it a pass, mm-hmm. kind of, because it's like, it, I get why some of these things were the way they were. You could make a really good, deep film about this plot mm-hmm. that actually handles mental illness and queerness in a moderately respectful way. Yeah, I think yeah. it's called Greta. <laughs> you didn't even give that movie that good of a review why do you keep pushing greta at least it has fun with its ridiculousness yeah this i think thinks that it's a bit more prestige yeah this thing's Mm -hmm. a serious adult erotic thriller and i'm here to tell you single white female you're basic it is (laughs) definitely but not basic instinct No, it would be a better movie if it was Basic Instinct. It's more Basic Instinct 2 Risk Addiction than Basic Instinct 1 No Subtitle. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Ladies, seriously, stay away from Basic Instinct 2. It's garbage fire. It's really funny. Oh, I've seen it. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's awesome. So, um, okay, so before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, ladies, would you like to plug anything? Would you like to let our readers know? Oh, my God. Would you like to let our listeners know anything? (laughs) Yeah, Ketchum, do you want to go for that? Let me take it. All right. Well, first, they can find us online at horrorhwy.com. And we're on Instagram and Facebook at AA Horror Highway, Twitter at Horror Highway HWY. And uh, some of the episodes that we covered in our first season were It Follows, The Perfection, Serial Mom, and Jennifer's Body. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. folks had a really good range. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like all the films y'all covered. I was like, yes, good choices. 
Yeah. And then I also want to mention that I have an, a podcast uh, with my friend Dee, who was with us on the episode for Serial Mom. Mm. So we are covering Curb Your Enthusiasm. So it's it's just me and my best friend, and we smoke weed, and then we talk about Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> Is it the new episodes, or are you like going back to the beginning? Oh, we're at the beginning. Oh, so wow. we just started season one. <laughs> so um, yeah, if you want to check that out, we're everywhere you get podcasts. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Larry Curb Podcast, and we're on Twitter at Larry Curbcast. So I've got right. those two going. <laughs> Larry Curbcast. I like that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay well yeah again thank y'all so much for coming we're glad that y'all uh, that y'all were able to come for this next time we'll pick a maybe a more exciting film <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you for having us mm-hmm. yeah it's been great okay well um, if you would like to contact us listeners you can visit our horror queers facebook page or join our exclusive horror queers facebook group uh tweet us at horror queers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com if you have two seconds, please head over to iTunes and leave us a rating. It's va- the week of Valentine's Day. If you want to show some love, just fucking do it. Yeah, show your queer horror podcast some love. I know. Mm-hmm. Also, I forgot, we didn't mention this, but it is Women in Horror Month, which is also why we right. covered this movie. So right. we'll have to um, put that on our socials when we promote this. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and so the week that this comes out, we do have a Women in Horror episode coming out. <gasps> what's the what, What's the film? Well, we're actually um, talking about Elise Guy Blanchet, the the female director from the late 1900s. Wow. Because she is said to have created the first horror film. So we just kind of deep dive into her life because she had so many amazing accomplishments. Oh, God. That's good. I'm glad you're still putting out content between seasons. That's really nice. Yeah. And if you want even more of our content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like Gretel and Hansel, or listen to our audio commentary on Valentine. It's the perfect week to do it, so just do it. Mm-hmm. Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about next week? Well, we're not quite done with friends who may be a little bit more, but I am going to offer folks a trigger warning. We are headed across the pond. We're going to go to France, and we're going to dip back into films of the new French extremity. We are doing our listener request, and Trace, I'm not sure I can say I'm excited, but we are going to check out Martyrs from 2008. So, yes, if y'all have never seen Martyrs, please be aware, it's very intense. It is the only horror film to have affected me to where I felt like a hollow shell the day after I watched it. It's deeply upsetting, and I doubt we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it, but there are so many things to talk about in this film, especially dealing with queerness and just philosophy in general. But, um, yeah, if you've never seen it, just so you know, we are going to change up our formula a bit. We are going to do the plot summary very quickly and then go into theme. So if you don't want to watch it, you can still listen to the episode because we'll get your bases covered very quickly and um, there will be a lot less riffing. So just be prepared for that. Yeah, but kind of like the way that we introduced Hostel Part 2, we would encourage folks that if you have held off watching this one because you just don't think that you can handle torture or you think it's misogynistic it's an important conversation to have we would encourage you to at least give it a try it's Mm -hmm. not an easy watch it's not necessarily an enjoyable watch for everyone this is a really important film and we're going to go deep into why we think so and important to note we're talking about the original 2008 french film directed by pascal loger we are not talking about the 2015 remake with pretty little liar troy and belisario Well, maybe a little. We'll Although we might talk about that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, on that note, until next week, we can cross out single white female. 
Yes, and cross out horror queers. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy, disturbing, and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, the queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.